You have been listening to sermon audio from Day 3 Church. We invite you to join us for one of our worship services. For more information, visit day3church.com. Good morning. Wouldn't it be great if all that was true? <laughs> you know, if, if everything that we just saw there, you know, eat blueberry pancakes and lose weight, you know, I, I could be there with that. The point of that video is you can't believe everything you always see on television, no matter who's saying it. And you'll find out today you can't even believe your own heart because of the way sin has impacted our heart our own mind. We can believe God's Word. Amen? And that's the point of this series. We're doing a series about doctrine. What should we believe? So far, we've talked about the Trinity, you know, who's God, and He reveals Himself to us as a Trinity. We also talked about Revelation, about why the Bible, about God's Word. Last week, we talked about the doctrine of creation, how God has you know, created us. He created everything. I pointed out last week, if you can accept the very first verse in the Bible, in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth, then that pretty much gives you a foundation to believe everything else the Bible has to say, if you can believe that. <clears throat> Today we're talking about this. Today we're talking about what our problem is. What is our problem? And we're talking about the fall of man, the fall of of man. We've got a problem that's called sin. Now, having used this terminology, the fall of man, I want to point something out before I even read some verses to begin with. The fall does not mean that somehow we accidentally tripped in sin. Man chose <laughs> to violate what God said. As a result of it, we had a fall. A spiritual fall, even a physical fall, an emotional fall because of sin. And I want to point that out because I didn't want you to somehow erroneously <coughs> get the idea that the fall means we just kind of accidentally fell into sin or tripped into sin. Or, you know, the old adage, the devil made me do it. The devil didn't make you do it. He can tempt you to do it, didn't make you do it whatsoever. Here, here's our verses today. And I'm going to just read it in about three different versions just to give you a little bit of a nuance to it. Not much, but uh, the uh, English Standard Version says this in Ecclesiastes 7. See this alone I found. In the background of Ecclesiastes, of course, Solomon's going on this <clears throat> safari, so to speak, trying to find out what in the world Life is about, you know, what all is going on in this world. She says, see this alone I found, that God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. New American Standard says this, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out many devices. NIV says this, This only have I found, God made mankind upright, but men have gone in search of many schemes. Gone in search of many schemes. Break down the verse a little bit with some word studies. <clears throat> the word for uh, sought out or in search of means to search out by any method, even to worship, specifically to worship or, or to have prayer, to strive after. Think about what was said a moment ago. God made man upright, but we've gone searching out. We've gone on a hunt, more or less, after sin. It even gives the picture of mankind, so to speak, worshiping sin instead of worshiping God. And then it says we have... Next, back up, please. And then, and then it says, we've gone after many schemes or devices. And th that word that was used there in the, uh, in the Hebrew 
Uh, it talks about a contrivance. It, it even was used to talk about a warlike machine, uh, an engine or an invention. The root word means to plant or weave or fabricate, to plot, to contrive in a malicious sense, to even value or to compute something. So, so bear that in mind just for a moment. He said that we have gone in search of many devices. God made us upright. God made man perfect. And yet we chose sin. And ever since then, we've been going on a search after more and more sin, more and more devices. I mean, it's almost like our sin. Look at the the definition of warlike machine. It's almost like our striving after more sin and bigger ways to sin and newer ways to sin. It's like we've got this war machine that we're throwing against God's will in our lives. It's like we are fabricating something. We're, we're wanting to fabricate or, or plan out or plot or, or contrive new ways to sin. Let me illustrate that for a moment. Years ago, if somebody wanted to get some pornographic material, they had to go somewhere and buy it. And, you know, at least years ago, it was even covered up with a cover to where you couldn't see it. You want a picture of how we have contrived, the human race has contrived towards sin. Today, you can just sit down on a computer and click, and then it's there all across the world, worldwide web. That that gives a picture of how man tries to further sin, how we've gone on this hunt even, trying to figure new ways that, that we can be involved in sin. That's the picture that's given us in those words. God clearly, not just in the verses that I've read to you this morning, but God clearly throughout the Bible, we're told that God made man upright, but he made us without sin, and yet we chose sin. It's not God's fault. Man made us upright without sin, but we chose sin in that and then since that choice, we've been kind of seeking out more and more ways. The human race has been seeking more and more ways that we can actually practice sin. You do realize something's not quite right, don't you? In lives, in our world, in our culture. I mean, there's something just not right. Somewhere something's gone to us. I mean, God, God made us like this. Look at the next slide. God, God made us right, but, man, somehow we're wrong. God made man perfect, but, but now we're perverted. God made man as his crown and feature of his creation. I mean, he had been creating and creating, and he said, that's good, that's good, that's good. And then he created man, and he stood back and he said, it's very good. That's what God says. God made us to be his image bearers. And I want you to grab that thought in your mind because you're going to hear it a couple of times today because the, that's really one of the most tragic things about sin. God created man to bear his image. But, but somehow our image has been flawed. And the root of reality to all this is that we recognize there's something missing. We recognize there's something wrong. You, you can go and, and uh, Brother Trevor, I'm not saying this because you and your wife are here with us today. I'll mention something about this at the end of the service. But uh, uh, Macedonia Missions, we've been supporting since really the inception of a day three church. And uh, they're from South Africa. And Lee and Crump and his family had a chance to go on a mission trip a year or so maybe before we started uh, day three. And, and we've been, uh, been giving them some financial support, not enough but some, to help train uh, a national uh, person there to be a pastor and, and go, you know, back to a village and try and start a church and pastor a church theirs. And you'll see a little bit more about that at the end of our service. But, but even someone in a tribe in the farthest reaches of this world, Africa or wherever, they know inside there's something wrong. There's something missing. I mean, mankind strives after the an Eden experience. We, you know, we want something replaced. 
But all of our own efforts still fall short. You know, all the hobbies, all the money we spend, all the possessions we might try and amass, everything that we may try and do to fill the hole in our heart is not filled by those things. And what is wrong in our heart as much as we try to fix it ourselves? Sew up our own fig leaves, so to speak. And we're trying to fix the problem that we have in our life called sin. And mankind does a really, you know, terrible job of it. But they're putting a lot of energy into trying to cover up our sin ourselves. None of it works. The only thing that replaces what is lost. The only thing that gives us hope. The only thing that helps meet that that understanding, that, that burden in our heart that something is amiss is when we have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That's all that replaces it. So today we're going to look at sin. We're going to look at how we became sinners. And to start with, I'm just going to give you a narrative, Kylie. We're going to go through, if you don't you know, join me in, in Genesis, we're going to go through, have the verses on the screen, but we're going to go through the Genesis account of the fall, kind of a narrative way, and then as much as possible, the time we've got left after that, uh, we're going to look at some doctrinal things having to do with sin. If need be, uh, we'll tell you how you can get the rest of the message. Uh, we posted last week's message on the website where you can not just hear it, you can also download uh, the file. And if we start to run out of time, we'll do that you know, this week also. But how did we become sinners? I mean, let's look at this story that we're given in the, in the Bible, this narrative that tells us about the fall, about the fall. You understand, God made us, as I said a moment ago, He made man perfect. He, he put man in a perfect environment. He, he was walking there. Man had, had fellowship with God. And then man chose sin. And we're going to look at that in, in just the way of the narrative. So we go through this. Genesis 3 contains some of the most important scriptures in all the Bible. In Genesis 3, you can find out the source of this problem called sin and death. You can also find the solution pictured there in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis 3, we can read how God created man and how that created man rebels against his creator, how sin began, and, and find out you know, what ought to look to us is just foolish choices, tragic actions by our first parents, and then see the resulting consequences of sin. And you can also see, even in Genesis 3, here in the early part of the Bible, you can see God's promise of a Savior. So let's just go through this narrative, some elements of the fall. First element is this, there's a serpent, a serpent. And that serpent is Satan, I'll show you why in just a moment. But the Bible says, now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. Crafty, sly. Revelation lets us know that that serpent was Satan and said, and the great dragon was thrown down, the serpent of old, who is called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. You've got this serpent that comes slithering along, crafty, that's going to tempt Eve, and then passes on to Adam to make some wrong choices. Now, this message isn't about Satan, but we need to establish a little bit of background for you to where you understand some things. His origin is this. Satan is a created being. He is not a god. He is not all-powerful. And some people get that twisted around. Not only is his origin, but look look at the next one here, his past. He was formerly angelic being who became really prideful, and he decided, you know what? I'm going to kick God off the throne. And I'm going to go be like God. And he led a rebellion in heaven against God that resulted in himself and the angels that followed him being cast down. In other words, Satan experienced his own spiritual fall himself. His purposes are this. Satan's goal is to destroy men who God loves. Who God created to reveal his love to, to have a relationship with. 
And if that's his purpose, we need to really be on guard because we're told this in First Peter. He's our adversary, and he's walking around like a lion. He's prowling around seeking whom he can destroy, whom he can eat down, who he can devour is what the Word tells us. We need to recognize he's crafty. The Bible calls him a liar, the father of lies, a dragon, the devil, an accuser, plus many other names. But he appears as an angel of light so he can do what he does best, lie to us and deceive us and try and get us to go in the wrong direction instead of God's direction. That's what he's about. Next slide, please. Since he's a liar and he tells lies, which he does in order to tempt Eve, Adam, and us still yet today. He tells the original lie, which is the second element of the fall, and that's the temptation. Look at these words. He said to the woman, talking about the serpent, Indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden we may eat, But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the middle of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it or touch it or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. For God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's original lie. It's still the lie that he wants to propagate in culture today. That somehow without God and without Jesus, we can become like God. That's the original lie that he's given. Isn't it interesting that Satan's original lie and this temptation is tied to what he wanted to do himself? He wanted to ascend to the throne. He wanted to be like God. He wanted to be God. And now he comes and he brings this temptation forward to Eve, giving her a temptation, trying to get her to go against God's will. He only speaks twice. But that's enough to cast doubt. Do you realize that's still the device that Satan wants to use? He wants us to doubt what God has said. He wants us to doubt whether or not God is really telling us the truth. He starts out with Eve and he says, indeed, has God said? He's raising a question. Has God said to you, you can't eat the fruit here that's in this garden from the trees there? And and then she responds to him. Really, in a a right way, she says, no, that's not really true. He's not saying that we can't eat of all the trees that are there. We just can't eat of the tree that's over there in the middle. I'm going to make some of the ladies mad, I guess. But I'm sorry, doctor and stuff, you've got to find something to joke about, you know. (laughs) The tree, instead of just being the tree over there in the middle, was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I don't know, I just had weird thoughts as I was reading this and studying this week. To me, it's like the woman saying, well, I don't remember the name of it. It's that tree thingy over there in the middle. You know? (laughs) I'm sorry, ladies, you can beat me up later. But she's she's given this this temptation. And, And then he starts to say, look. God did not really tell you the truth. He starts trying to twist the word of God. And he says, you will not die. And he said, here's what's going on. God knows that if you disobey him and you eat that fruit, and the day you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you'll be like God, knowing good from evil. That's your temptation. You can become like God. Check out a lot of false religions in the world. You know what they tell you? You can become God yourself. You can become like God. You can replace God. You don't really need God. That's what he tries to do still yet. He wants to change the meaning. You know what one of the biggest attacks is that that Satan wants to use against mankind in the day even in which we live still yet? He wants wants to change the meaning of God's word. Because he said, oh, that's not really what God meant. God didn't really mean you'll die. God's word actually meant something else. It's kind of the the thought that's being given by Satan. And that's what happens still yet in our culture today. But I've got news for you. What God said, he meant exactly what he said. Because on the other side 
of even Adam's sin. On the other side of that taking place, here's what you see happening right in Genesis 4. The first murder happens. Adam and Eve have a son to murder a son. And then you go to Genesis 5, and you'll see a genealogy listed there. And as you look in Genesis 5, you know what you read? And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died over and over and over again. God told them exactly what he meant. God knew it was best for them. God wasn't trying to be some spoiled sport, but just saying, no, you can't have of that fruit that's there in the Garden of Eden. God realized that it was best for them not to partake of it. And we'll talk about that and the reasons why in just a second. But what God said was exactly what he meant. The instant they partook of it, innocence died. The instant they partook of that fruit, innocence died and guilt came in. The instant they partook of that fruit, I believe probably the very elements of death and aging started to set up in their bodies. And then the following chapters, I said, you see, time and time again, he died and he died and he died and he died. Another element of the fall is this. Sin, the sin, the sin of Adam and Eve. The Bible says this. When a woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was desirable to make one wise. She took from its fruit and ate, and she gave also to her husband with her, and he ate. Following the temptation, I want you to notice some, some things, some progression here that takes place in, in Eve's choices and her sin. First of all, you've got the lust of the eye. Satan tempts, and, and, and there it is. But look how beautiful the fruit is, Eve. So there, she, she's got something placed before her with the eye that she lusts after. Then you've got the desire of the heart. Well, so I can, if I eat this, I can become like God? And maybe pride is in play there. Because if you read in Proverbs when God gives us a list about things that he hates, you know what number one is on the list? Pride. Because... Pride is what causes us to want to put God aside and put ourselves on the throne. And then you see the act of sin taking place. It starts out with her looking, and then she lusts, she has this desire in her heart, and then she falls through with the act of sin. Look what kind of sins took place here in this passage, the type of sins that occur. Eve's sin, to start with, was a sin of commission. That means it's something that she did. Maybe she's thinking, I can become like God, like I said, prideful. But she actually did it, committed an act of sin. Adam's sin initially was a sin of omission to start with that became a sin of commission. Why did I say it was a sin of omission? Because Adam advocated his God-given responsibility to lead his family. He advocated his God-given responsibility to lead his wife. Because when you read this narrative, it gives the picture of, yes, Eve is there partaking of the fruit, but guess who's standing by watching? And instead of him intervening and saying, no, God said we're not supposed to do that, he stays there with his mouth shut, and he admits to do something God has called him to do. So his sin to begin with is failing to lead as a spiritual leader with his wife and with his family. Guys, that ought to break our hearts today. Because probably a lot of us are guilty of doing the same thing. Failing to be the spiritual leader of our homes and the spiritual leader of our wives. And to say, look, God said this is what we're supposed to do or this is what we're not supposed to do. And allow the word of God to direct what happens in your home and in your family instead of what the world says is okay. But then his sin becomes a sin of commission because he does what she says. Look, partake of this and eat of it and he eats of the fruit also. Look at some consequences that happen. Immediate and ongoing consequences. God's rules or commands, I hope you understand this, God's rules or commands are always for our good. Do you realize that? 
Like I said a moment ago, God's not trying to be a spoil sport. He wasn't putting, you know, trees there and saying, no, that's off limits. God knew that there would be very negative consequences that mankind would face as a result of disobedience. It wasn't like God was saying, look how beautiful this is. I'm a spoil sport. You can't touch it. Have nothing to do with it. God understood the big picture because he's God. God knew the consequences that would happen. There were immediate consequences that occurred and ongoing consequences that occurred. Let's look at some of the consequences that happened because of their choices. Consequence number one, awareness of sin. The Bible says this, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. Up until this time, they had not experienced shame. They had not experienced guilt. Adam had, a, had a, this fellowship with God. God would come and talk with him and walk with him. He had not felt guilty at all. But now because of the choice of sin, shame comes into the world. Guilt comes into the world. And it still affects us. That's why we wrestle with shame. That's why we wrestle with guilt. Look at the next consequence. The consequence of guilt and the fear of God. The Bible says they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord called to the man and said to him, where are you? Let me just qualify something. God's God, he knew exactly where Adam was, okay? He was wanting Adam to admit. He was wanting Adam to come forward. And he said, Adam said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. Because of sin, that guilt comes in and that fear of God comes in. And they go and hide. And the same thing we wrestle with today. I mean, be honest in, in your own life. Even you know, if you're a Christian, we still sometimes make poor choices, wrong choices in our life. Right after you sin, are you a little bit guilty about opening your Bible or about praying? Are you a little bit worried about that? Because the guilt is there and, and we maybe fear God. Instead of having that close fellowship with God, our sin can cause us to want to separate ourselves and go and hide from God. Still happening today. Look at the next consequence. Worthless attempts to cover sin. The Bible says, And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They had not been ashamed of the way they were before. But here instantly they do what the human race has been doing and is still trying to do. We try to fix what is broken by ourselves. We try and sew our own fig leaves together, trying to cover up or conceal our nakedness, our sinfulness. The problem is it doesn't work. And you'll see what God does in a minute to show them that it doesn't work. Look at the next consequence. Relational distrust, accusations, and excuses. All that is active in our society today. And it started back with the original sin. You see a picture of relational distrust happening, accusations and excuses taking place. Look what's said in these verses. And he said, God said to Adam, Who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Then the man said, look at how some accusations start taking place and excuses. Then the man said, the woman you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, she passes the buck to, the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. All these types of excuses and relational problems and, you know, people distrusting people, it began right here with the original sin. To begin with, the man accuses the woman when God confronts him and he says, what have you done? Adam says, well, it's her fault. I bet that went over big when they started to retire for the evening. Amen, ladies? It's her fault that this happened. Not only does... He accused the woman. He accuses God. He said, God, it's your fault. You're the one that made her. God, if you hadn't made her, this wouldn't have happened. She wouldn't tempt me. God, if you hadn't made her. So he starts blaming God for it. 
And you see just this, this history, this starting of relational distrust and accusations and excuses that's still running rampant in our culture today. He looks at Eve and he says, what have you done? And she says, well, it's that serpent that deceived me. In other words, it's not really my fault. It's, it's the devil made me do it. That excuse that we still have today. The devil made me do it. And the thing about it is we still do similar things. We still blame God. Trying to get the, the light of conviction off of our own life. God, that alcohol that I, that I have such a problem with, God, I wouldn't have a problem if you didn't make it. God, those drugs that I've got addicted to, I mean, you know, you, you put everything here in this world that they could be made from and everything, I, I just wouldn't have a problem if you hadn't made it. God, the, the lust and the sin that I struggle with when it comes to women or vice versa, you know, for a, for a woman when it comes to a man, God, I, I just wouldn't be facing and dealing with those things. If you didn't make them, it's all your fault. And that's the approach that our culture still takes today. We, we have relational distrust and accusations and excuses that started here with the original fall. With this original fall, self-sacrifice is replaced with selfishness. Peace is replaced with restlessness in our hearts. Responsibility is replaced with blaming others. Transparency is replaced by hiding from God. It's the beginning of things like greed and fences and malice and wars. It all begins here because of the original sin. What's another consequence? Well, another consequence we find in this story is this. The judge passes sentence. God, as the judge, passes sentence. First of all, he passes sentence on the serpent. On the serpent. Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, cursed are you. More than all cattle and more than every beast of the field on your belly you'll go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. I want you to pay attention because that's primarily his judgment. And I'll talk more about that in a minute against Satan. Between you, between the woman, your seed and her seed, and, and he shall bruise you on the, on, the heel, on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's primarily the judgment that's going to happen. We'll go on because I'll explain that in just a moment. He also passed his judgment on the woman. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your pain in childbirth. How many of you ladies have had children? Some pain involved in it, wasn't it? You know who you can thank? Eve. And sin. Your desire will be for your husband. Really, the, the way that's phrased, and when you look at it in Hebrew, it, it, it's kind of like God is telling this you're going to have a desire to rule over your husband. That struggle that might come up in your life sometimes as ladies to have the desire to do that, and, and you're wrestling with those types of issues, you want to know who you can thank for it? Eve. And sin. What about some of the inequalities that seem to exist in our culture in this world? You know, toward women, just maybe who you can thank for that is Eve and sin. He passed judgment on the man. Then he said to the man, Because you've listened to the voice of your wife, guys, that, that, let me qualify this. That doesn't mean I'm telling you today to leave from here and never listen to your wives, okay? I don't want to do a whole bunch of marriage counseling. My wife sometimes speaks truth that I need to hear. You understand? <laughs> a lot of times she does. Because you've listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten from the tree. See, here's the deal. He listened and he's violating what God's commandment was. Which I command you, saying you shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles, it shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground. Because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. You ever been walking in the field and got stuck with a thorn? You want know who you can thank for that? 
Adam, in sin? Are you ever frustrated at work, guys? I mean, just the work, the labor that you're doing out on the job, sometimes it frustrates you and you're just really upset with it. You know who you can thank? You thought it was just your boss's fault, didn't you? You can thank Adam and sin. When, when you're working and you're, and you're just sweating up a storm and, and everything there under the hot sun, who can you thank for that? Adam and sin. Maybe you're wrestling with the reality of death, the fact that death is looming in front of you and you're going to return back to dust. Who can you thank for that? Adam and sin. The consequence. Look at this other consequence, a huge one. Death. Death. The Bible said the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. As far as we know, there has never been any kind of death until this moment. The Bible doesn't reveal about death at all until this point in time. Can you imagine Adam and Eve? They have never seen anything like this. Their heart was not hardened to it like ours by seeing bloodshed every moment on television or bloodshed when you go to the movies. And now they stand, maybe slack-jawed, as God kills some animals. And as God kills these animals, he does so to take the skin and to cover up their nakedness. And in doing this, God is teaching to them, your self works, your fig leaves will not work. The only thing that will fix your sin is me as God on your behalf taking care of covering your sin. Which is a picture of the fact that his son is going to come and be nailed to a cross. And God, take the, the, he's the only one that can take our sin and deal with our sin so you and I can be restored to what we've lost because of sin. Death happened. They had never seen death occur before. Look at the next slide. Another consequence is actually a merciful banishment. You might not have thought about this before because you do realize as a result of their sin, God said, all right, you're leaving Eden. I'm kicking you out because of what you've done. I'm putting an angel here with a flaming sword to where you can't come back. And because of their sin, they lose that. But I think it's also a merciful banishment. And here's why. I'm not going to take time to read all the verse. You can read it later. But God says we better kick them out lest they partake of the tree of everlasting life. The tree of life. You want to know why that was merciful? What if they had partaken of the tree of life in their sinful state and lived forever and ever and ever underneath that sinful state? Look at the next slide. Another element of this story that we call the fall is the promise. A savior in restoration from the fall. Now, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. But then look at the next slide to really let that make sense. We already read it a moment ago, and I'll put him between you and the woman between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's God himself giving a prophecy of Jesus to come, of his son. It's seed singular. Because it is going to be Jesus Christ who comes. And yes, he may be bitten on the heel. He may be bruised on the heel. And he's beaten and he goes to a cross and he sheds his blood and he dies. But on the other side of it, he takes his life back up, having paid for the sin of all mankind. And he takes his life back up and by doing so, he crushes the head of the serpent. That's that's just the... Some of the story, some of the narrative of what happened, of how we became sinners. Let's break it down a little bit and talk about some doctrinal stuff. First of all, what about sin? I mean, you know, man fell because of it, because of this temptation that happens about sin. So, so what about sin? What about sin? Start with, let's talk about what is sin. What is sin? The Bible presents sin as major concepts. The Bible presents sin as lawlessness, as godlessness, as faithlessness, as a breach of a covenant, 
as a relational breach, as a disruption of created harmony with God. And now a resistance to the divine restoration of that harmony through the gospel of Christ. In other words, even though God through Jesus has paid the price for our sins, God through Jesus has took care of the sin problem for us, mankind resists it. Mankind stands opposed to it. The Bible also presents sin in an array of images, a lot of different images. The missing of a target, the wandering from a path, the straying from a fold, the stepping over a line, the failing to attain or reach a line, hard heart in a stiff neck, blindness, deafness, defiance, uncleanness, pollution, defilement, filth, transgression, and shortcoming, commission and omission, a heap or accumulating burden. In other words, our sins piling up. Perversion, that means we're using good things that God created in the wrong way. That's the way the Bible in some big pictures gives us the image of sin, what sin is all about. What's a good definition of sin? The word idolatry. The word idolatry gives you a big picture that covers what sin is all about. Because idolatry is basically this. We're taking something, or we're taking our own desires, or we're taking ourselves, and we're trying to dethrone God or de-God out of the equation and not allow Him to be God and put ourselves or something else in that position. That's what we're doing when we sin. We're taking sin. You might not have thought about it in these terms, but really what you're doing is this. When you choose sin, you're taking sin and bringing it up as an idol that's more important to you than God in that moment when you sin, when you choose the sin. So idolatry gives us this, this picture of sin. And all sin is ultimately against God. David said this, In this psalm of repentance that he wrote in in Psalm 51, verse 4, the first part of it, David is praying and he says, Against you and you only I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now let me ask you a question. Did David sin against Bathsheba? Yes. Did David sin against Uriah, her husband, who he had murdered? Yes. Did David even sin against the nation because he was there as a leader? Yes. But ultimately, here's where the sin lies. Ultimately, each and every sin that's committed is against God. Next slide. Where does sin originate? Because some people deal with this and have a question with it. I had someone send me an email right after we started the first message in this series. And the email said, well, you know, with God creating everything and God being God and being all-powerful... Why did God create sin? God did not create sin. It's not God's fault, and you'll see that in this passage of Scripture. Next slide. There are four essential Christian truths that we need to establish before we look at some verses. Number one, God is fully and continually all-powerful. That's just a basic foundational Christian truth or doctrine. Number two, God is totally good. There is no evil or sin in Him whatsoever. If there were to be, He would not be God. Number three, evil and sin really do exist. They're not just some type of concept that man has made up. They actually do exist. Number four is this. Sinners are fully responsible for their sin. It is not God's fault when Eve sinned. It is not God's fault when Adam sinned. It is not God's fault when we choose sin. He did not Call sin to come about. It did not originate with God. James tells us this. Let no one say when he's tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil. And he himself does not tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust. Look at the next verse. The rock, speaking of God, his work is perfect. For all his ways are just, a God of faithfulness and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Second Samuel 22 tells us this, as for God, his way is blameless. What I've already alluded to in creation, God made creation and God made man and he stood back and he said, it's good, it's very good. God didn't say I messed up. God didn't say that I, there's some flaw that I made. God said it's very good. So what happened then? Where did sin come from? Sin came about 
when man chose to disobey and violate God's will and God's word, and that is still what causes sin today. Sin is not God's fault. Something else about sin. How bad are we as sinners then? You ever heard this phrase, total depravity? There's a famous psychologist you might have heard of before, Sigmund Freud, years ago. He coined a phrase referring to man. Homo, homei, lupus. Which means this, man is a wolf. We may not like that definition, but that gives the idea of mankind because of how we are impacted by sin, crouching like a wolf, seeing how we might destroy seeing how we might take over for ourselves, seeing how we might injure. That's even someone who is secular saying, I understand, I realize there's a problem with the human race. And there is. There is this problem with the human race, and it is called sin. And we are totally deprived, the Bible teaches us. Total depravity means this. Look at the next slide. Go on by by that, please. Total depravity means that every motive, word, deed, and thought is affected or infected by sin. We don't like that because of our human pride. We want to think of ourselves as dignified, but the Bible literally teaches that every motive, word, deed, and thought is affected or infected by sin. Our minds, our wills, our emotions, our hearts, our consciences, even our physical bodies are marred or stained by sin. There's no aspect of our being that is not negatively impacted by sin because we're totally depraved. We are totally sinners because we chose sin. Look at what the Bible says. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? Ephesians 4. So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they having become callous have given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity and greediness. Titus chapter 1 says this, To the pure, all things are pure. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Titus chapter 3, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. We're totally deprived. We're totally depraved. We're total sinners. And here's the tragedy of that. And this really, guys, this really just hit my heart this week and you'll see in a moment i'm gonna cover some ways we view sin and all but a lot of times we just think when we sin well we just kind of crossed over one of god's rules or broken one of god's rules the great tragedy of sin is this god created us to bear his image god created us to be his image bearers but because of sin in our lives We're missing our God-created purpose. Next time you're tempted to sin, don't just think about, well, it's just a little infraction. Think about this. Your choice to sin is you violating the very purpose God created you for. To bear forth His image in this world. And the problem is this, because of sin in our lives, when we choose sin, we're given all creation an erroneous view of who God is, a faulty image of who God is when we choose sin. When you lie, you're making God to look like he's a liar to creation. Because we're the ones that God chose. We're not like the rest of creation. God chose us to be better and higher than that, to carry his image before creation. And when we sin, We violate the very purpose God made us. What kind of tactics does God use against us then, or does Satan rather use against us? What kind of tactics does he use against us with with temptation and and such to get us to go against God's will, to get us to sin? You see, anytime you have a battle taking place, there are tactics 
that are taking place. There are strategies that are taking place anytime you have a battle. I want you to understand, first of all, two things you need to be aware of about Satan, two tendencies we need to avoid. One is to make too much of him. Don't make too much of him. He is not God. He's not all-powerful. Two is for us to not make enough of him. For us to fail to realize that he is our enemy, to make too little of him, denying or ignoring the fact that he exists. So let's look at his tactics. Tactic number one, the world. Tactic number one is the world. Satan uses the world in the things of the world to tempt us to sin against him. See, by the world, the Bible means the organized system that is opposed to God. It's not talking about the planet, the earth, the dirt itself. But there's this organized system that is totally opposed to the will of God. That's what Satan wants to use. Look at how he uses the world. See, the world is a place devoted to the lust and to the desires of the eyes. So the sinful longings that we have are promoted by everything from advertising to pornography. The world is a place where our pride in possessions or positions or ambition, you know, causes us to have sinful actions. The world is a place of sinful longings in our flesh, such as gluttony or alcoholism or or drug addiction or sexual addictions, whatever. That takes place here in the world with the sinful longings that we have. Satan has that as a tactic that he wants to use against us. So since that's true, God gave us a defense against this tactic. Look at God's defenses that he gives us, how God gives us three defenses. A threefold defense against the tactic. Here's number one. We're not to love the world. Don't have time this morning to read all the verses. But basically, in 1 John chapter 2, verse 15, we're told this. We are not to love the world. Because if we love the world, then we are loving something instead of loving God. We're, you know, we're, not to be at, we're not to be friends with the world. We're to be at enmity with the world because the world is at enmity with God. As Christians, we need to understand this. The world is not our ultimate home. The world is our mission field. The world is a place that God has left us to carry the gospel. But it is not our ultimate home. Our ultimate home is in heaven. And that's why we're not to love the world and be so attached to the world. Number two, we're not to allow the world to shape our values. Romans 12 tells us that we're to have our minds renewed and transformed, not by the world, but by the Bible, by the Word of God. And that's our defense against the temptations that Satan wants to hurl our way. We're supposed to use the Word of God. If we allow the world to shape our values as to why we exist, what we believe, and how we should act, will you please notice what we're doing? Then we're being converted to the world instead of seeking the conversion of the world to the kingdom of God. We have been called by God as believers to try and convert the world for His glory, for His kingdom. We are not called to be converted by the world ourselves. Number three is this. Jesus died for the world. We're to die to the world. Jesus died for the world, for us, and for the sin. We're to die to the world. Galatians 6, 14. But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Next verses. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. See, here's the mindset that we're to have as believers. When temptation comes, I'm supposed to view myself as though I'm a corpse, as though I'm already dead to sin. A corpse can't commit a sin. We're not dead. We're still alive. Yes, we can accept temptation. But I'm telling you, the mindset that we're to have when temptation comes and the world says, this is the way you should live, and God in opposition is saying, this is how we should live. We should have the mindset, the attitude that we are dead to the world because Satan wants to use the world as a tactic against us. What's his next tactic? It's the flesh. The flesh is the old man. Paul uses that term to kind of depict our desires and tendencies to sin against God. The flesh is that part of us that puts self-interest, what we want above God's interest, what God's will is. We want our will instead of the will of God. The flesh is where we wrestle with that. 
The Bible also gives us a threefold defense against the flesh. Number one, we're to realize we're no longer under bondage or slaves to the flesh. Read Romans 6 when you get a chance, and that's what it will tell you. Number two, we're to walk in conscious submission to the Holy Spirit. The believers indwelling God and comforter. That's why God gave us the Holy Spirit. Paul writes this in Galatians 5. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. If we'd allow the Holy Spirit to guide our lives based upon the Word of God. Number three, we're to put to death or mortify sinful desires. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. And really that's saying, I put it in a, in a parenthetical bracket right there, you're going to die. But if by the Spirit you're putting to death the deeds of the body, you'll live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father, the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are the children of God. We're to put to death those deeds and those desires. Like I said, it's like you have died to those. Next slide, please. The last tactic is the demonic. We might not like to talk about it. We might like to ignore it unless you're watching a horror movie. But the demonic is real. And there are demon influences in this world. And in, in just some regular ways, and, and you might not have thought, I'm not trying to offend anybody, but I'm just telling you, just in some regular ways, anytime you give in and you violate what God's will is, and you reject the Word of God for your lives, you're giving in to a simple demonic influence. Let me give you an example for the my heart. The Bible says light and darkness doesn't have any fellowship together. I don't think a believer is supposed to marry a non-believer. And you might be hurt by that and thinking, is that a demonic influence? Yeah, anytime we violate God's Word... That's a simple type of demonic influence. There are other demonic influences that cause pain and terror and possessions and things like that. It's real. You read about it in the Bible. Well, God also gives us a defense that we can use against the demonic, and it's the Word of God. Instead of giving in to the temptation like the first Adam gave in, we're to be like the second Adam, the Lord Jesus Christ. When he was tempted in the wilderness, here's what Jesus said. It is written, it is written, it is written. That's how you deal with temptation. That's how you deal even with the demonic when you're being so tempted and so you know pushed upon to go against God's will. You need to take the Bible and say, you know what? But God said, this is right and that's wrong. To depend upon the Word of God. How should we relate to sin? I'm going to cover these next two really quickly. So, uh, you know, kind of try and keep up and uh, look at the notes. How should we relate to sin? There are secular ways of relating to sin. Materialism, sin is reduced to just a chemical imbalance. It can be addressed by medicine. In evolution, sin is anything that hinders the perceived progress of the human race. In psychology, sin is caused by low self-esteem or one's past experiences or their environment. In humanism, sin is only something that's done to hurt another human being. In environmentalism, sin occurs when we harm Mother Earth because environmentalists give all equal value to every forms of life, including men, plants, or whatever it might be. In pantheism, sin is being out of balance with our immediate environment. Since God is in everything, then we have to be in balance with everything. That's the way pantheism views it. And those are all erroneous ways that we ought to relate to sin. There are erroneous ways also that some people who claim to be Christians relate to sin. Sin is only breaking God's rules. You know, that's true. You break God's rules. But the point is this. You're missing a bigger picture, and that is a relationship and fellowship broken with God because of sin. Since Jesus died for sin, some people believe they don't need to strive or live holy lives and repent when we fail. But here's the deal with that. On the other side of Jesus dying on the cross for our sin, being buried, taking his life back up, going into sin and sitting down at the right hand of God the Father, in the epistles that Jesus caused to be written, it tells us that we're to repent. It tells us that we're living holy lives. Just because Jesus died on the cross doesn't mean, oh, I've trusted Jesus, I can live any way I want to live. And yet some people believe that. Look at the next one. On the other extreme, some believe if they do not confess every sin, they'll go to hell. You know what the problem is with that? Our intellect and our memory is impacted by sin. I and you don't have the capacity to even perceive and know everything that's sin that we should repent of. 
Some believe that as long as they have a good heart and good intentions, that God won't be displeased with their sin and they'll go to heaven. The Bible says no one is good. Some wrongly believe if no one is hurt by their sin, then what they do doesn't matter. But the truth is, sin always hurts somebody. It'll hurt you. It'll hurt people around you. It'll hurt God. It can hurt a church. It can hurt a community. It can hurt a nation. Some believe unless they are caught in the sin, it's okay. But the truth is, there is no sin that is ever a secret sin because at least God knows. Next slide. Some people think as long as sin is popular or as long as our culture accepts a certain sin, it's all right because everybody's doing it. But see, here's the deal with that. Morality is not to be set by our culture. Morality is to be set by the Word of God. Some believe or think that mistakes and sins are synonymous. In other words, they're one and the same, but they're really two different things. A, a sin is a moral wrong. A mistake is a mistake. It's morally neutral. In other words, if your child accidentally spills milk, it wasn't a sin. If they threw it at you, it might have been a sin. But if they accidentally spill it, it's not a sin. And we'll treat our kids sometimes just when they make a mistake like they've sinned against God. What's God's way of relating to sin? Hebrews 9, 22 says this. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness. Sin serious. Sin calls death. It requires payment of shed blood. And Jesus shed his blood for our lives, for our sins. How can we be so frivolous with sin and act like it doesn't matter? How does God relate to it? It cost him his son on a cross for our sins. How should we respond to sin? Look at this and then we'll... Sinful responses to sin are these. Minimize it. Just kind of make excuses or compare your sin to somebody else instead of comparing it to God or Jesus. Legitimize it. Try to pretend you have a good reason for your sin. In other words, you couldn't help it. You had a good reason. Rationalize it. Tell yourself it cannot be avoided because of some extenuating circumstance. Confuse it. Delude yourself into believing you're different and God somehow will overlook your sin even though he's going to judge everybody else. Blame it. Blame somebody else instead of blaming yourself. Partially confess it. Only confess part of your sin instead of being transparent and honest before God and confessing all of your sin. Here's the deal with that. He knows already. Why partially confess it? Grieve it. That means you're just sorry for sin, but you don't go beyond sorrow and you don't repent. Merely confess it means you confess but you stop short of biblical repentance and you just keep letting that sin be lived over and over and over and over again in your life. How does God respond to sin? What would you do if you were God? Now think about that real quick. If you were God, what would you do? If you had created man, and if you had put man in a perfect, total, perfect environment, and they had pretty much spit in your face and chose sin over you, how would you respond? See, a lot of us wouldn't even gone back into the garden and called out Adam's name. We just thought, I'm done with you. But God went there, and he pursued man, and he's still pursuing man. But how would we have responded? Would you have sent your son to die on a cross? Would you have submitted your son to the hands of sinners, the second part of the Trinity, to suffer on the cross and die for their sins? Is that how you would responded? Would you have put your son in the hands of sinners to provide for their salvation? Would you nail your son to a cross in order to once and for all pay for the consequences of the fall and the penalty of sin? I mean, how would we respond? That's how God responded. Genesis 3.15, God preached the first gospel, what's called the first gospel, when he said that the woman's seed is going to crush the head of Satan's seed. First gospel, that he would send his son. How should we respond to sin? Really, how should we? Our response ought to be a deep, broken man. We ought just to be busted before God, humble before God, because of our sin. We shouldn't ever just think it's something fun. We shouldn't ever just wink at sin like it doesn't really matter. We need to remember something. Our sin, my sin and your sin, 
put Jesus on a cross and he suffered and he bled and he died for our sin. That's how we ought to respond to sin. We need to see ourselves as God sees us. Instead of trying to see ourselves in some higher way, God says that we're lost in sin without any hope apart from the biggest thing that we need to be sure we respond to sin like this. Next slide. All importantly, we need to receive God's one and only solution for our sin. You want to know what that is? Jesus crucified in your place, in my place, on the cross. Jesus, once and for all, paying for our sins. Jesus being our sin bearer. So you and I can once again bear the image of God. That's how we ought to respond. Much more than having been justified by His blood. Through Jesus we can be made just like we have never sinned. Through the blood of Jesus from God's perspective. We shall be saved from the wrath of God against our sin through Him. Because Jesus took God's wrath upon Himself for us. In Him we have redemption Our sins have been paid for. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace. Let's pray. Father, Lord, I pray this morning that You would speak to our hearts about the seriousness of sin. Father, if there's someone here that has never said yes to Jesus, Lord, no doubt they've got a knowledge, they've got a longing, they've got an understanding in their heart that something is wrong. Father, help them to understand today it's because of their sin. Lord, because of Adam's sin, we were born sinners. We inherited and were imputed to our lives the, the sin of Adam. All of us here were born as sinners, and yet all of us also not just were born sinners. We, we choose sin of our own volitional will, given opportunity. All of us have sinned. But Father, if there's someone here that's never said yes to Jesus, help them right now to understand that Jesus paid the total price for their sins. That through faith in Him... They can have everlasting life. Father, I pray if there's someone here that does not know Christ, that you would draw them right now to yourself. Those of us that already know Christ, or maybe we've been having a view of sin that minimizes it, or we've tried to make excuses for our sin, whatever it might be, God, help us to be humble before you right now about any sin that's in our life. And Lord, as believers, if we're practicing sin, help us to right now to repent of it and turn it loose. Thank you that you loved us so supremely to send your Son. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So band plays. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, we invite you to come. The band plays, if you already know Christ and and maybe you realize you've minimized sin and, and, and what it really means and what it has done, maybe you need to come as a believer this morning and pray and say, God, forgive me. So we stand and the band sings. You are listening to Sermon Audio from Dayton Church. If you have any questions about God, faith, or our church, email us at info at And for more information, find us on the web at dayfreechurch.com.